Hello and welcome back to Back in My Play. The show has finally returned and it is now part of this new business that I started called the FitCast Network at fitcast.network. There you're going to get Back in My Play every single Friday now. You're going to get the FitCast every single Monday and then in between you're going to get three new shows. You're going to get the FitCast Book Club every other Tuesday where I get together with someone else and discuss these amazing books in personal development, business, and mindset, goal setting. That is every other Tuesday. Every Wednesday, you're going to get this show called We Are Recording, where I interview incredible people that are doing amazing things, how they got to where they are, the successes, the failures, and what is to come in the future. That's every single Wednesday. And then every other Thursday, you get FitCast Life Fuel. That's a show all about motivation for you to refuel yourself to help you do whatever you want to do in life, whether it be start a podcast, start a video series, helping you start a business, all those things that you need. And we want to help motivate you to do whatever you want to do in life. That is just an amazing show. I really hope you go check it out. I've been loving it so far. I really think you'll enjoy it. Along with all that stuff, I've invested $400 in brand new audio equipment, so I probably sound a little bit better now than I do in the show because I pre-recorded that. But going forward, all future episodes are going to have improved audio. So that is something I promise to deliver to you. So finally... Again, this is a business now at fitcast.network. I have invested some money in this because I want to make this a successful business by not just delivering you great shows every single week, but hopefully giving you shows that you think are worth supporting. And the best way to still support this show is at patreon.com slash back in my play. You can make a donation on a per episode basis, or you can go to fitcast.network and you can make a one-time donation on the PayPal tab on the right-hand side. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. This is episode number 65. It is Akimojo Densetsu, Castlevania 3 on the Famicom and the NES. It is an amazing episode. I really enjoyed it, and I can't wait to see you next week. Thank you so much for your support. I hope you check out all the other shows coming up on the FitCast Network. episode we're going to be talking about Akamajo Densetsu of course that is Castlevania 3 if you are in the United States but I believe we're going to spend a lot of time focusing on the beautiful small cart with its awesome VRC6 sound chip oh it sounds so good so good and of course if I'm talking Castlevania there's a pretty good chance on the other line is Kurt Collada. Kurt, what's up, man? Hello. Wow, this is. We're. I'm not gonna go too in depth, but like, I literally just beat this game, thinking I wasn't gonna be able to finish it, and then I'm like, I'm gonna use Periscope because why not? People stop using Periscope. I'll use it for a couple minutes, and ended up beating it while with the like the pressure of the internet to to help me out. So it was great. Um, but we have a huge show for you this week because. Not only is it going to be more Castlevania, but it's also 
kind of the first episode, I'm recording my order, that I've done in like three months. So the show is back. You've already heard everything else in the other episode, but it's great to have the show back on a regular schedule for everyone out there. Thank you so much for your support. But uh, before we get into any of that, we have to talk about this fantastic game. So I'm going to put in a bunch of breaks like you think I would do because this has an amazing soundtrack. Castlevania Best Series. Pick it up from Amazon Japan. Great one disc set. And listen to some of that. Stick around. We'll be right back with the history of this fantastic game. Yeah, let's start talking about the history of Akumajo Densetsu. And I've been, try- I've been practicing that name because you guys know I'm so- it's been three months, but I'm so bad with Japanese names, even though I was just in Japan three days ago. Still bad with <laughs> Japanese names. Um, but we, of course, know this game is from- coming from Konami, who not only developed it, but also published it, uh, the last in the Castlevania series on the Famicom and on the NES uh, before the series made its transition to multiple other consoles, of course, including the the Game Boy, uh, the PC Engine, and then getting a Superfied version on the Super Famicom and the Super NES. And then don't forget, probably my fan, my favorite in the series, Bloodlines, that later came on the Sega Genesis. So lots of great games in the series, right around like this this whole pocket of like four or five years, but. I digress. So, uh, Kurt, we were talking a little bit uh, about the director, uh, Hitoshi Akamatsu, who uh, you, you dug up some, some information real quick. I couldn't find anything, but what did you find out about this director besides working on this game? Uh, not really a whole lot. Uh, there's this uh, interview with the guy who made Super Castlevania 4, and I have to dig it up before, that said that the, the core team who worked on the Nintendo Castlevanias was all roughly kind of the same people, mm-hmm. uh, including this guy. Um, but the only other really game they could find credited to him was Snake's Revenge, of all things. <laughs> uh, which I, I also maintain Snake's Revenge is not a terrible game. Oh, no, not uh, at all. So, um, but as far as where he is now, I'm you know, not really sure what else he worked on. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, that's the history of Japanese video games and, and video game creators. Some of that stuff is just kind of lost until someone steps up and either digs that stuff up or the people themselves come up from, from under the woodwork. So uh, this game, as I mentioned before, has uh, an incredible soundtrack. It's at the top of the, the NES and the Famicom libraries in terms of music composed. And, of course, with the help of that VRC6 chip on the Famicom, and even they did a really good version uh, for the, the NES with its limitations as well. But uh, the composers for this game uh, include... Uh, Denori, uh, Meizawa, uh, Jun Funahashi, uh, Yuki 
Morimoto, Yoshiniro, Sasaki. I'm, I'm again, not not too bad. Hopefully, I got most of those right. But that I thought it was. This is kind of. I don't, I don't want to say it's like it's odd, but it's you're not usual that you see like a huge lineup of composers for a game. A lot of times it's just one person taking the lead and they might have like an assistant with it. Was this kind of how it was across all the Castlevania games or was this game special? Uh, Konami tended to do that uh, every once in a while, depending on the game. Like uh, I think the original Castlevania was done by two people, mm-hmm. uh, Kino Yamashita and uh, somebody else is Terashima, I think his name is. Mm-hmm. Something, yeah, something like that. Uh, and the, the second game, uh, was it Kanichi Matsubara or something like that? He also did Haunted Castle. Oh, okay. uh, but uh, the a lot of other games, like if you look at the credits, especially the greatest games, like some of the earlier mm-hmm. ones were done by one composer, mm-hmm. but as uh, Konami had a pretty pretty large sound team, so they would just have uh, a bunch of different people contribute to them. So sometimes it would be a singular work, sometimes it would be a bunch of different people. It's so fascinating that. I, I guess for for when I, when I look at the past, when I look at like the the late eighties, even mid eighties, when it came to to video games at this era, like it's almost hard to believe that these companies like had so many people on their sound teams, like uh, Konami and, and and Capcom and and Sunsoft, that just had this like ridiculous all star lineup of of composers that worked on you know multiple games. Like they just had this great bullpen of talent. Uh, in those companies, it was just incredibly impressive. One of the great things about the the Japanese bubble economy was that they just had all this money to invest in crazy stuff. So oh, okay. they had these, uh, you know, the companies like Konami had the Kukeha Club, uh, Taito had Zutata, right? And uh, you know, they would put out all sorts of CDs and stuff, which became more prominent, especially in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. So they kind of like dovetail together. And Konami in particular was very, very big on sound hardware like they just devote a lot of stuff to it like uh, before even uh, the vrc6 and the stuff they did with uh, the famicom sound hardware mm-hmm. they had the sac chip for the msx mm. and uh it was used in a lot of their shooters from uh gradius 2 onward wow. um they were bundled within them and then for their their disc-based games there was a separate uh cart with the, the chip with the came in it's for like snatcher and sd snatcher and it did something similar they don't sound the same mm-hmm. but uh you know they added extra sound channels to it so it just gave it a much richer sound so they probably wanted to do something similar to the vrc6 yes yeah, it's, it's uh like it it always is, is really cool to like you could almost pop in a random game and just by listening to the music in it you could kind of you could kind of identify what company made it whether like sunsoft had a very unique sound uh, Konami games had a very unique sound. Even Capcom games, like you, even like Jaleco games, like you could put those in and you could almost listen to it for 10, 15 seconds. You'd be like, oh, yeah, that's a Capcom game. I'm sure. Like I can tell just by, you know, how they're utilizing the sound chip or whatever, like the, the way that they do the drums, you can just kind of tell that is a game that was must have been developed by that company or at least someone that was influenced by that company. It was something that was really unique to this this era of time before we, of course, got into CD-based uh, audio where you kind of couldn't, couldn't recognize it, maybe just based on composer, not just by company. There was a, on One Up years ago, there was an interview with Hidenori Maizawa. Mm-hmm. He was, I think he was the guy who actually may have engineered the VRC6 chip. 
Mm. So he just sort of talked. It was, I think Jeremy Parrish did it. Like he was at an E3 once and his editor came up and he's like, I think we found the guy who composed Castlevania 3. Would you like to interview him? And he was like, yes. <laughs> so, um, I mean, since one up is in like a quasi preserved state, it might not be up, but it was an interesting read. Ooh. Um, let's see. I think I'm, I think I found it. An interview with Konami's, uh, Hidenori, uh, Maezawa. It's, yeah, it's still up there. Thank you. Whoever bought, who I don't even know who owns one up now. This is IGN Entertainment at the bottom, but I don't even know who who owns that. So um, I'll put that link in the show notes. It was on January fourteenth, two thousand and nine. Was the interview? Uh, it's on the Retronauts blog, so you can go check that out. Like, yeah, like they're just even in this blog that I'm uh, looking through real quick. You know, talking about the sound of the the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles games, like. Um, the Manhattan Project, just oh my god, just like one of the best soundtracks uh, on the NES as well. Like they just they just brought the heat, and it was just constant heat, constant fire uh, from top to bottom. Just some of the best music was was coming out of coming out of that company and their composers. Just amazing stuff. I like that, uh, especially looking at both the Japanese and the European scene. Like they they really put a lot of efforts in composers, mm-hmm. and I think that really starts from the fact that you know the Nintendo had. You know, pretty customizable sound hardware for what it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, the European computers like the Commodore 64 and the Amiga were, were pretty powerful. Yeah. But if you look at the American side, like, you know, our IBM PCs didn't even really have sound <laughs> hardware. And uh, the Sound Blaster 16s were, I mean, they had like really not great FM synth. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple composers that could do really good stuff with it, but they weren't, they weren't emphasized nearly as much as stuff that comes out of Japan and Europe. Yeah, Duke Nukem on my IBM 386 did not sound super great. Uh, no. Duke Nukem 3D, just straight up Duke Nukem, uh, downloaded from Prodigy, not not the best. No. Uh, so, uh, you know, again, you, you mentioned Jeremy Parrish to this uh, awesome interview. And just reading through it real quick, some, some great tidbits that are, of course, applicable to this episode. Um, in the interview, I said... Uh, there are waves for the sound with Famicom. Uh, there were three types of waves, square, triangle, and sawtooth. And you're able to use one for each of the three channels. But with the VRC6, you could add an additional three channels for a total of six notes and six channels. Uh, he says, I was actually the one who developed the chip, of course. Uh, of course, there were other technical people who put the parts together, but I was involved in the design. A chip is small, but the prototype uh, was huge. I think the chip was first used in Akumajo uh, Densetsu, which was Castlevania 3 in America. And Jeremy mentions that, uh, yeah, unfortunately, we did not get that chip uh, because the NES was not capable of utilizing it. Um, you can actually mod your NES today to allow that chip to be utilized, like if you want to use a converter and stuff like that. Um, but uh, just out of the box, an NES could not utilize that chip without modification itself. Crazy. Yeah, it's because uh, the expansion port, like... Oh, yeah, uh, that's right. I might be wrong, but I think on the Famicom, the expansion port is located on the cartridge slot. Mm -hmm. So it just has extra pins that it reads in, and that's what feeds music through. Well, on the Nintendo, since I don't think they were planning to put the Famicom disk system, because that was the main thing it used, Mm -hmm. the expansion port is on the bottom of the system. So it just physically, the music has no way to to get through the system. Mm -hmm. Uh and it's funny, just, uh, yeah, really great interview. Jeremy was always, Jeremy's always doing amazing stuff with retro games. So make sure you're checking out um, not only this ancient now 2009 blog on the Retronauts blog. Thank you for one up still being up there. But uh, if you're 
still in a retro game is you should be on, on US Gamer as well because they are continuing to do fantastic work on that website. So uh, back to talking about uh, the game itself. It uh, released in Japan on December 22nd, 1989. So this wasn't even like a super late NES game. It was still kind of, I mean, it was late in terms of, the, uh, you know, the Japanese release six years into the release of the Famicom. But for us in the United States, we got it in 1990, four years in, and so we're still a year away from the Super Nintendo. So it wasn't that, I guess it was towards the end of life, but it still seems like it wasn't like 1993 when you're getting Mega Man 6 and you're getting like all these other games that are just squeezing every last bit of juice out of that thing. This game was incredibly impressive. The... Uh, I always like to look for commercials and stuff like that for the game, and really all that I could find was a magazine ad uh, that Kurt, you said you could you actually like saw it in in the back of a, a comic book, but this uh, this only ad that I could find on the internet for the U.S. release uh, was for people to enter to win a radical trip to Dracula's hometown, and of course you could get a copy of Castlevania Three. Dracula's Curse with the uh, fantastic artwork on the front. So, uh, again, I think we're going to go with the theory that probably no one ever won that thing and it went to a family member instead, uh, like many other magazine contests back in the day, because I didn't, I didn't ever win one. Did you ever win a contest magazine or a magazine contest or any of those like submission contests? I never won anything. No. <laughs> And then you like find these people like, yeah, I won three Super Nintendos, you know, any that big TV. But like there was that ad in the Game Pro. Okay, you remember this? That ad in the back of Game Pro, where it would be like a, it was a super easy crossword puzzle, and all you had to do is finish this super easy crossword puzzle, and I think you had to submit like five dollars or something like that. And you could enter this contest to win every single one of the current generation consoles, like a big 32-inch TV, this big, like, awesome stereo system. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, we were talking about it in uh, the site's forums a little while ago because uh, we posted an article for the TurboGrafx-16 game Sinistron, and that was the game that was used in a lot of those ads. Oh, like in terms of, like, the cross- crossword question? No, just, like, the image of the game oh, on the okay. TV. <laughs> Um, see, this is the weird stuff that I still somehow remember, but I can't remember, you know, important dates in my life for, for people I love and care about. Um, <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about that VRC6 chip. So uh, as I mentioned before, uh, the chip itself added two extra pulse wave channels and a saw wave channel to the system's initial set of five sound channels. The majority of the music uh, combines the channels to imitate the sound of a synthesized string section. Uh, the North American release uh, replaced the VRC6 chip with Nintendo's MMC5 chip. The MMC5 chip sound channels cannot be used with the NES, and the game's music had to be downgraded uh, to Yoshinori uh, Sasuke, and the, excuse me, downgraded by uh, composer Yoshinori uh, Sasaki uh, to comply with the NES's standard five channels. Uh, there were some other changes between the two versions and the NES version and the Famicom version, including uh, changes in gameplay and in graphics. Instead of using a stabbing dagger, Grant throws daggers as his main attack uh, in the Famicom version. Some enemies do less damage in the Japanese version and had their sprites changed for the Western, Western release. 
some instances of nudity on the enemies were also censored. The Japanese version has slightly different bra- backgrounds in many stages and had special effects not seen in the North American and European releases. So it seems like, I mean, I guess you would agree, Kurt, that the Famicom version, if you're going to own one, you're going to probably want to have the Famicom version, Famicom version just for, for all the reasons kind of just mentioned. Yeah, in the end, it's a very, like, it's fundamentally the same game, but there are a lot of balance changes that uh, make it a very different game. I, I, I don't know how you beat the NES version. Uh, well, the main thing is that the NES version was nice enough to give you a cheat code that gave you 10 lives. Right, I tried that. Help me does not work on the Famicom version. Yeah, that's that's definitely uh, was able to, so you wouldn't have to start each level from scratch as often. Oh man, that game! I'm still, I'm still fan of. Like, I'm just coming off it. I'm still, I'm still like sore from from that. My thumbs hurt. So, um, the uh, the game obviously had a fantastic reception, and just uh, a couple years ago, Nintendo Power listed it as the ninth best NES video game uh, of all time, praising it for its strong uh, improvements over previous entries in the series. And this game has been on every Nintendo Virtual Console, including the Wii, the 3DS and the Wii U, uh, as well as it got ported to Windows with a uh, Castlevania collection that came out in 2002. Do you know how that was, Kurt? Did you ever get to check that out? I never bothered to play it because uh, it was just it was basically just an emulator on a disc, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I bet it was probably just like a like nesticle on, with ROMs dropped on top of it to, to get it to work. Um, the last thing I want to talk about with the history is that Obviously, we had Castlevania II come out uh, on the disc system in, in, in Japan and on the, the NES in the United States. A very different game than what we saw from Castlevania I. Very much uh, like a, not like one one but very much like Zelda II, where Zelda II was a very big departure from the original game. With Castlevania II, it changed to, to an open world game where you had to go into towns, you had to meet people, you had to do backtracking, you had to go to a bunch of different castles, you had to track down all this, all these pieces of, of Dracula and for some reason bring them back, back together, I believe. And uh, not as well-remembered, maybe not as well-received um, due to its, its changes, and there were a lot of obscurities in that game that made it uh, quite hard to play unless you were subscribing to the number one video game magazine, Nintendo Power. Um, so I'm going to say straight up, probably never going to talk about Castlevania 2 on this podcast, probably never going to cover it. So I want to talk to you now about it, Kurt. So uh, wh- where does Castlevania 2 sit uh, in, in this series for you when, you talk, when I talk, I guess when we talk about the NES games, where, where does that sit? What are your feelings about Castlevania 2 and kind of the, I guess, not backstepping, but they kind of went back to what really worked with Castlevania 1 when it came to Castlevania 3. Yeah, they were just in general very experimental, especially with uh, trying different RPG stuff because you know, RPGs were all the rage thanks to Dragon Quest, mm-hmm. you know, just being a phenomenal success. Right. So so they tried to do different stuff and almost almost more like a PC game and taking the sort of like, you know, open-ended sort of thing. But those RPGs in general are always kind of obscure anyway. Uh, that's just kind of the way things were back then. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, they're arguably done to sell strategy guides. <laughs> uh, and things like that. I mean, they were explicitly done in the case of a lot of like American ones, but I'm sure they just made it weird because, you know, why not? Nobody cared. You know, if anybody yelled at them, you know, whatever. Uh, 
I, it's, it's a game I really like, even though it is completely inscrutable. And it's hard for me to judge it because it's just been mapped on my brain. So I know pretty much how to beat it. Right. Uh, but if you were to plot me, give it to me now with no foreknowledge of it, I don't know if I could deal with it. It's, uh, it's, it's a game that has great music. It, uh, the gameplay is, is pretty rock solid. It's just, Okay, maybe I will go look at it someday. Uh, uh, it does have really incredible atmosphere. Like yeah. just the use of the color palette, the whole uh, day-to-night cycle changes. Again, the music and the just sort of, you know, any game that makes you feel kind of lost and like oppressive, that sort of mm-hmm. feeling is, you know, Castlevania 2 does that very well. Um, even more so than other similar games like, um, like Goonies 2, which is, that's a little bit more user-friendly because uh, there's an actual map, even though it's not very good. Yeah, we can talk about Goonies 2 and Goonies 1 all day. I love – I actually beat Goonies 1 on my PlayChoice uh, play 10. That's a great game. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, any any other anecdotes or, or things that, that come to your mind when it comes to this game, Kurt, before we, we go back to the past and talk about our memories and history of the game? I remember just – it has the most inscrutable pause screen I've ever seen. Like just looking at that in a, in a magazine, I was like, what What am I looking at? What is all this stuff? And it's like the, all those gauges mean things. But mm. um, it's, a, it's definitely a game that you have to take very slowly because it, it relishes in tricking you. Yeah. Uh, not only because of the weird directions but the fact that uh, so many of the – uh, mansions are filled with booby traps and mm-hmm. invisible things that you have to like really every step toss holy water to make sure that you won't fall through. Uh, yeah, that's I mean, I think my my only real like I've seen most of a playthrough through the angry video video game nerd's eyes uh, and his play kind of playing through it and, and driving him and his character nuts. But um I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking about maybe if I pick up a disc system again someday, maybe I'll play through the the Japanese version. I don't know. I'm guessing. I don't know off the top of my head, but I'm guessing the the music on the disc system version was better. I don't know if they had to make compromises for the NES version or not. It's weird because the you know the the Famicom disc system had some extra sound channel too, right. wave, wave table. And most of the time, they were either used for sound effects or to sort of supplement the main music. Mm-hmm. And it feels like the main tracks of Castlevania 2's music is done with that the wave table, mm. uh, which is very unusual. Uh, and I actually think the Nintendo version sounds a lot better. <sighs> it's it's the only time that I've ever really seen anything like that. So it's not like Castlevania 3 where playing the Japanese one is a better experience. It's it definitely play in English mm-hmm. also. Yeah, good call. Uh, because you don't want to get lied to in Japanese. Get <laughs> lied to in English. <laughs> Anything uh, in terms of, of Castlevania Three? Anything that you think we we left off? Any fun anecdotes or or anything that that come to mind with that game? Uh, do we want to get into like personal experiences with it yet? No, just like in terms of its kind of oh. weird history in the in the past. The uh, mental no. stuff. Uh, not really. There's nothing it really. It's been kind of cloaked in mystery. Yeah, it's a it's a good game. Go 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 pick it up. It's got that awesome gray box on the NES. Can't miss it. Um, all right, well we'll take a break right now, and we'll be right back uh, with our memories and history of uh, this fantastic game. So stick around and listen to some more just incredible music from the Famicom version of Akimojo Densetsu.
We're going all the way back to the end of 1989, but more likely 1990 when this game was coming out. In the United States, we have just a a jam-packed lineup on the Nintendo Entertainment System. It is dominating, but there's this other console in the background, the Sega Genesis, that is starting to threaten Nintendo on its throne. And Nintendo's like, no, no problem. We got the Super Famicom thing. It's coming out in 1990 in Japan. We'll have it for you next year. In the meantime, here's some great stuff. Dracula's Curse. Go play it. So, Kurt, um, what what are your memories in, with, in history with this game? I'm, I'm guessing uh, this is something that, that you got to, to play back then. Is it something that you picked up? Was it a rental? Was it something that you kind of played over and over again and unlocked all the different uh, paths through the game? I was really hyped for it because uh, I had subscribed to two magazines, Nintendo Power and Video Games and Computer Entertainment. Oof, okay. And uh, they, Video Games Computer Entertainment gave it a really good review. And, of course, Castlevania, you know, Nintendo's, uh, their layouts could sell you on the crappiest games. So. <laughs> uh, they just had great design in, the, in Nintendo Power. Like, even going back today, like, it, it just screams 80s, but it just looks so rad with the layout of the magazines. You're like, oh, look at these screenshots. I want to go fight that boss. And they had really good art, too. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, for a long time on the Castlevania Dungeon, like, we used to scan some Nintendo Power for the characters because they were better than the little, you know, <laughs> monochrome scribblings that were in the manual. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, I was just hyped as hell for that game. Uh, mostly because, you know, I love games that had multiple paths and multiple characters. Because when I was a kid, you know, you, you buy a $50 game. That was your game for three, four months until, you know, mm-hmm. you know unless you rented something else. So to just play through the same game and have the same experience every time, especially after you've beaten it, it just, you know, it lost its value. So a game that had all these different paths, all these different characters, all these different permutations, like, I could play this game infinitely, potentially. So that had, you know, really got me into it. And I had I had rented Castlevania 2 and just kind of muddled through it like every other kid at school. Mm-hmm. And uh, I played, like, Castlevania at a friend's house or something like that. But this was the first game that I actually, actually bought. Um and it was it was actually at the end of October, and uh, I was going to go to the local James Way to get Final Fantasy because that was another game I was really hyped for. Thanks for Nintendo Power Strategy Guide, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I just I really wanted to try like the RPG stuff that was all the rage. Did, um, were you playing like I'm guessing Dragon Quest would have came out a couple months before that, right? I. I know I played Dragon Warrior. Oh, Dragon Warrior, yeah, yeah. I think I had, I didn't really like it that much, though. Like, I had played it at a friend's house, or I, my dad had rented it. Mm-hmm. And and then I ended up getting it free later because of the Nintendo Power subscription. Yep. Um, That's how but, I mean, do. Final Fantasy blew Dragon Warrior out of the water. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I went there to pick that up. Instead, Castlevania 3 I saw on the shelves. Like, okay, I'm buying that one instead. <laughs> uh, and again, it was a really good time because it was like a couple days before Halloween. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, yeah it really set the mood for it and yeah i played the hell out of it uh <laughs> but I, I didn't beat everything i never was able to beat it as just trevor alone and i never beat the cypher route Ooh, uh okay. but i did do grant and alucard and i don't remember how long it took me to do it but i remember the the night i beat it because i was ecstatic Kind of like how I just was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I finally did it. So, um, well, okay, so you, you beat the, the NES version of that game. I'm guessing it was, uh, was it all in one day, or did you spread that through through a couple nights? Oh, it was definitely over the course of a while. Okay. I, I, I have no idea how long, but. 
and you have the like the great thing about this game is you have the the passwords so you can jump to uh, a future level just like in, in original I'm believing I'm correct and I say I'm thinking like the Famicom version of Castlevania but also didn't the original Castlevania have password system as well it had a save game I, I uh, mean but the NES version did, did that use passwords no. instead of save game right no you needed to start over from scratch every time oh, okay so that's why because this is the weird thing is I also owned a I think I may have sent you the picture of this. I don't have it anymore, but I had like a Chinese bootleg of Castlevania oh, yeah. One on the yeah. Famicom, and it had a battery backup save. That's there. Hmm. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I think I, that's the one you sent me, wasn't it? I, 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 oh, I maybe I sent. I probably sent the game. Yeah. Oh yeah, I did send you a game, a box of games. Yeah, I know. I, uh, I, I forget what that was. That was just the. Um, I think it's the in Famic- there. The Famicom. I'll have to dig it out and it's check. It's like a like a gray cart with Chinese writing on it, and um, it actually the battery's dead in it, but it actually saves to like it has three slots, like it did on the disc system, but instead of obviously writing to the disc, it saves to some like SRAM or whatever is in there. That's really puzzle. I mean, they the, they would hack Famicom disc system games to put on cartridges. Right. Although it's weird that they would do that because Castlevania did get a cartridge release later on in Japan, which is right outside of an easy mode. It's basically identical to the uh, American release. Well, and, and it's also like three hundred dollars for a loose cart right now. It's yeah ridiculous. I didn't do really any shopping, at least shopping where there'd be high price items in in Tokyo last week, but. Uh, yeah, that game is is very very difficult to, to track down, and if you are, you're going to be spending you know two two hundred fifty dollars to to pick it up on the Famicom, where it's like fifteen dollars on the NES. You can just grab a copy. Um, okay, so uh, in in like kind of like while you're playing through that, did, did you have your like Nintendo Power next to you? Did it have a bunch of tips in there, or were you kind of just going in cold and just kind of going up against just the incredible difficulty with it? Uh, just going in cold. I don't remember using it that much. Uh, a lot of it's just because you can say uh, it's intuitive if you're already kind of familiar with uh, Castlevania. And I mean, Grant in general can just be used to s- skip a lot of areas or just make things easy. <laughs> like uh, Castlevania 3 in general has a lot more platforming mm-hmm. than the original one did. And the fact that a Grant has a has a larger jump that you can actually control on midair makes those areas a lot more helpful especially until you get used to the the stiff castlevania jumping oh i should have uh, hold on a grant yeah he makes like doing the pirate ship with any character other than grant <sighs> oh my is, God. Uh, or even even in like the i'm jumping ahead of myself but uh, i think it's stage uh i believe it's stage eight or n- one of the stage nines where you have to like jump from these long platforms and make these like perf like pixel perfect jumps at the edge of the platform which looks like you shouldn't even be that far out onto the next platform which is at just the peak distance that your character can jump um yeah i heard a lot when i played this game from falling into pits because i missed jumps and that's one of the reasons I never really played a cipher that much, because between Grant and Alucard, he had the uh, the bat transformation, yep. so he can skip past some of the the hairier moments, and uh, you don't get that advantage with cipher. Yeah, I, it, it was just a case of again jumping ahead, but um, I was playing in Japanese and just kept hitting buttons, and then I didn't realize that I was giving up my previous partner for this new partner. But that's okay. We'll talk about that in uh, in a little bit. So. 
Uh, when, when you were playing this game, uh, you obviously made it all the way through. At the end of the day, you know, what, what were your final thoughts? Were you just like, man, this was just like so much of a pain in the ass. I didn't even enjoy it. Or was it, you know, shooting up to the top of your, you know, your favorite games? I love the hell out of it. And at the same time, I was also really intimidated by it mm. because it's a long game compared to a lot of other stuff. Like it's oh, yeah. like ten, 10 stages long. Yep. Um, so a full playthrough takes quite a bit of time. And plus like just, it used to take me like almost a day to get past a level or two. <laughs> so, you know, to go like, well, this is going to be a 10 day long trek to beat this game again. I don't know. Mm. Uh, but you know, I still, from a technical standpoint, it just it was just mind blowing. And, and and it seems like from from when, when I played it way back then, it was it was strictly a rental. I got um, I rented that, and I believe it was X Men uh, from, <laughs> from LJN, your friends uh. at LJN, and I had. Uh, I had the chicken pox, so I was home with like basically stack stack of rentals and you know a nice tall glass of Coca Cola, and I had to pick between these two games, and I ended up finding Castlevania three so hard I played more of X Men with this crappy Wolverine like oh it's so it's like top down. I haven't I haven't played that game since then. Like since I was in second grade when I played it, this is nineteen ninety two or maybe ninety one. No, that game. Don't play X Men from LJN. Not the best. Uh, but yeah, so like for for me that turned me off from all Castlevania. I never really went back to Castlevania games until until uh, Symphony of the Night. Did not play another Castlevania game until then. Yeah, I, mean, I I still loved it, especially for the music. Like I would of spend course, a yeah. lot of time at the the sound test, just listening to the music over and over. Mm-hmm. And like I I went back and played the original Castlevania later. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, because I had played it, but I hadn't beaten it. And uh, I think the original Castlevania is harder by a pretty substantial margin. Really? Yeah. Uh, a lot of it just because uh, you don't have those extra characters. Sure. Uh, sure. I I think I think when when I played through Castlevania one, I guess it was two years ago or something like that now. But, um, it was, it was the first game for the show where I started really having to get good. And since I've been really good at pattern recognition, which I think that is a, it's a big deal when it comes to games like this of the era, where you need to make sure that you can be able to look at an enemy and almost have like that those lines drawn on the screen like projected onto the screen with your mind and know exactly what trage- trajectory they're probably going to go in as you guys can probably tell I have a cold um but the i mean th- this game it's well I'm, I'm going to wait for the second second next segment but um th- this is one of those games that I wish I could have appreciated back then because I think it would have allowed me to venture off into other more difficult games where if I played a really difficult game and it didn't have like a save state or it threw you all the way back to a couple levels ago or it didn't have like a really nice continue where you could start right where you died, um, it, it just was not something that I, I played a lot of. I was a very much like a like Super Mario World, you know, maybe Super Mario Brothers 3 because that wasn't too hard. You had the whistles and stuff, but... This was a game I wish I could have appreciated back then because I would have then gone on to play so many other games that are similar in terms of difficulty and, and played some more classics back when they were brand new. 
to you. Like I was at uh, like Ninja Gaiden and Bionic Commando isn't as difficult, but it's definitely pretty challenging. Yeah. So again, you know, I wouldn't consider a game done until I had actually beaten it. So those, even though it was difficult and it made me really angry, you know, it had a lot of play value to me as a kid. So I, I ended up getting acclimated to that sort of stuff. Well, on, on my on my whiteboard of episodes to do for back in my play right now, I have uh, Ninja Gaiden 1, 2, and Famicom version of 3 because it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so those, those I, I really like uh, Ninja Gaiden 1. I, I love the hell out of that game until you get to that infamous spot where there's like a hawk that's flying across the screen and constantly knocking you into a pit. <laughs> um, just cannot cannot handle that uh anything else from from your past with the game or anything that you can remember in terms of just kind of where you were at at the time because i'm, I'm guessing not not soon after castlevania 3 came out castlevania adventure uh came out on on the game boy as well i don't know if you're keeping an eye out for that too i think it may have actually came out before oh really yeah i think if i i mean i don't i could look it up but 89 i think was the year the game boy came out Correct. and Castlevania Adventure was a launch window title. You're right. It came out the year before. And I don't remember if I had played that before. I didn't have a Game Boy growing up. I did remember going to a friend's house. Like someone, one kid there had a Game Boy and I, I played it there. Uh, but yeah. That's all right. The only, the only real good Game Boy Castlevania game is Belmont's Revenge. It's just so, so good. And we already recorded an episode on it. So you can go check that out if you'd like. Um, as far as Castlevania 3, I, I was just blown away by uh, the laughing on the, the password oh, of the name yeah. entry screen. Ha, just ha, that, ha. Yeah. that was just, I mean, digitize, look, there, there are certain things that old Nintendo games that, you know, even when I was like nine years old, I was like, this is very impressive from a technical standpoint. Did you play and, Ghostbusters? Ghostbusters. Uh, yeah. Anytime there's a digitized voice, I was like. I have to just hit the button and reset and hear it over and over. Like even that crappy Simpsons game where they had oh, the digitized God. voices. But, um, Barker's space mutants. Yeah. That one. Jeez. Um, but LJN. yeah, like, more LJN that, that scene, uh, right at the beginning where Trevor's like praying and there's that really stirring music and then the lightning strikes yeah. and then he stands up and he swipes around. I would just like watch that reset and then just watch it over and over again. It was just so incredible. It was like a movie. Yeah, I did. I did the same thing with uh, like I'll, I would I'll constantly rewatch the the intro to Legend of Zelda: Link's Awakening on my Game Boy because it looked like I was watching a movie on my Game Boy. It was incredible. And uh, like moving backgrounds was another thing that was fairly impressive back mm-hmm. then. And uh, so you had the things like the gears in the clock tower mm-hmm. or the the really cool looking like water falls and streams that are later in the game. Uh, the way that the pendulum moves yep. and how it's sort of mimicked with uh, the way it changes tiles. That was always really cool looking. Uh, so just like lots, lots of really cool things like that. There was Konami showing off their Nintendo programming prowess. Just squeezing what you could out of the Famicom and that small little, you know, small little family computer. Just I'm looking at it right now, just pulling out every last last ounce of power. And if you can't get the power, all you're going to do, throw in another chip. Um, well, that is, uh, I think that's going to be it for, for this segment. What we're going to do is, now again, we're going to nod our heads, listen to some more Castlevania music, and it's probably going to be 60 seconds worth because this tracks are really long and they're really good. And then we're going to come back uh, to 2016 and talk about what it was like to play this game 
today. So stick around. Uh, we'll see you in a minute. Okay, we made it all the way back to 2016. I have my AV modded Famicom hooked up to my beautiful, Kurt. You have one of these these beautiful Commodore, I think it's 1701 monitor. <laughs> nice. You do, do you have one of these? Oh, they're awesome. I have a, a Panasonic that's, I mean, it's it's nice because it's an SD TV that has uh, component inputs. Oh, perfect. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I love this. I actually sold my my PVM. Uh, to some gentlemen, believe it or not, found me on Craigslist. He ends up being a big retro gamer as well. They're big for retro gamers. Um, but I held on to my my Commodore monitor just because of how rad the rainbow logo is, and I just kind of love the the look of it and the badass big speaker on the top of it. But anyways, I digress. Um, so for for this episode as i mentioned before um i did not play the the nes version i i stuck strictly with this famicom cart that i picked up a couple years ago uh from your friend and mine friends in akihabara uh japan and uh i got in when that game was still like 22 dollars like it was like 2200 yen for a loose card of it where now it's like close to 50 dollars prices are going really sky high in japan and online but you can still pick up this game for like about forty or fifty dollars, depending on shipping. So you can go about picking up a copy if you if you want to. Um, I don't know. Have you tried playing the Japanese version uh, via emulation? I'm guessing it's fine because you can pick it up on the Japanese virtual console as well. Yeah, I mean it's been fine for a while. Okay. I forget. Like, um, like I actually bought my copy like way back in the late '90s. Um, Did you? How'd you import it? Uh, way back in the day, before they were like really web forums, they had news groups, mm. and I used to browse the uh, the video game marketplace forum. And there was this, some guy that would run like little auctions every once in a while, and mm. some guy in Canada. And I found it there for like you know twenty bucks or so, a box copy of it. Whoa. Uh, so that's how I got it, and uh, I was really disappointed because I didn't have a Famicom. Mm-hmm. I just had a Nintendo, right. and at the time, it wasn't documented that you know it, the music won't work, and oh. I was super disappointed about that. And I was like, oh, to actually buy a Famicom, I was you know I was in high school, I couldn't, I didn't have the money to buy another system, uh, so I just kind of had to deal with it. Um, just, but, you just hung on to it and just you know waited for the day when you know that you would, you'd be able to. <laughs> find an auction or find someone that had a Famicom for sale? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the first thing I got, there's a Famiclone that I picked up in New York City, like, back in 2004. It's this, like, weird-ass, it was a keyboard, um, but also had a slot for Famicom games. Weird. And uh, I was actually really surprised that uh, Akamaji did such not only worked, but the sound channels worked, too. Wow. Uh, I actually posted a YouTube video of it, like, again, like a decade ago. 
uh, just showing how it what works. Was it like, do you think it was running like a have one of those Famicom on a chip things? I'm sure it was just like a Famicom on a chip. Um, yeah. I've never. I know in general, Castlevania three has problems with a lot of those. Uh, you know, what do you call it? like retro clone sort of things. Uh, I'm not sure if Akamatsu Densetsu has the same problem or not. Oh yeah, like we're we're talking things like the the Retron, which does have a problem with this. I like to refer to those as just pieces of garbage. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've never been like even any of the family clones have had the sounds have always been off. Like it, yep. it we're in the sound channels, but still sounded a little weird. Yeah, anything that uses specific chips uh, in NES games or even just like still they those things do not really run Sega Genesis games really well. Not even to mention the crazy chips that can be in a Super Nintendo game. So. Always avoid that stuff, guys. You, if you're listening to this, get the real hardware, and then if you need to play it on a like a big HD TV, spend three hundred dollars on a Framemeister or something like that, and it will look pretty good. Uh, but yeah, I think at the time, I don't think emulators ran it very well, if at all. But eventually, it, it supported it, so I mean, it, it runs perfectly well nowadays. It's uh, in in. When when I kind of went at playing this, and, and we talked about doing this game like a year ago, I think, and I keep putting it off because it's such an intimidating game to play because I almost, I'm almost worried that I'm not going to like it because this is a soundtrack that I love so much. I'm worried that if I play through this game, I'm not going to enjoy it or I'm just not going to have the, the strength to get all the way through it. But I, I did over the last two days. And not only that, but my character is not – like we mentioned, the mobility of the character is not super impressive. It is basically like a tin man that has been rusted and uh, left outside, and then it was 3,000 years later. That's what kind of mobility we're getting out of this character. At the end, I had mastered those controls so well. I was dodging enemies. I was whipping at the perfect time, so I was getting enemies far enough away. I was like Jackie Chan playing this game. Not Jackie Chan's Ashen Kung Fu, but it was Castlevania Three with the mobility of a Jackie Chan-like character. So... Um, that that's what really is super satisfying about games like this, uh, and the same thing that I found with Bloodlines, Castlevania One, and Rondo of Blood is if you master those controls, you just feel almost unstoppable. Like you are just knowing the enemy patterns. You're dodging right out of the way. You're getting perfect whip strikes midair as you're changing directions. And even though you can't change midair, you're like jumping one way, and then you can immediately turn around, whip the other way. And you just feel like, yeah, like I am a, I'm a, you know, Castlevania game master. This is the game that I am the best at. I wish there were esports that just involved Castlevania games because I would probably be in the contention for for those series. But um, with with me, like I, you, you, I can get through like those first five or six stages. I think it's probably the first. No, it's it's the first five stages, Kurt, and then then it gets really hard. Like I think it's the first five stages, then six. It's like, all right, well, I'm going to kind of figure it out. But then seven, eight, nine, and then you get to the final stage. It it really ramps up and they throw everything they have at you. Yeah, I think even even the clock tower, like the second alternate level, which you don't technically have to play, that level is pretty difficult. Oh, I love that level. It just looks I mean, like you said, the backgrounds, it looks so good and the music is so great and it just goes perfectly with the gears. It sounds and plays fantastically. And it's, it's a level where it just... 
jump it, timing your jumps off the gears is a little difficult. Mm-hmm. You have the Medusa heads, and then once you beat Grant, which is a pretty easy boss, yeah. then you have to go downwards. Like, what is that? Like, this is what I'm backtracking in in a in a Castlevania game. Like, this is so weird. Where's the red orb that I jump on, and then the level is completed? I actually have to go back down these stairs, and it's kind of way harder to go back down than it is to go up because you still have those enemies. Plus, you need to make sure what you're going to jump on is below you on the screen. If it's not, you're dead. If it's not on the screen, it doesn't exist. Yeah, it still it goes by that weird rules where, uh, you know, if you scroll off the bottom of the screen, and you're not walking on steps. <laughs> right. you'll, you'll still die. Yeah. And you got those Medusa heads just flying all over the place. And it, like when you when you get Grant, like you get that ability to climb on on the tiles and stuff like that, they kind of teach you immediately by showing you this area uh, as you go through the door at the bottom and you start keep continuing to backtrack through the level. It's like, oh, well, you know, I could totally get up there now, right? Oh, yeah, you can get up there and they reward you. They give you a one-up once you get up there, which is like the only one-up that I found throughout the game. But it's just a, a really interesting design technique to not force you to learn the mechanics of the new character, but just say, hey, you know, maybe you should play around with what this character is capable of because you should be able to utilize their uh, their unique abilities for the rest of the game. We want you to know about this stuff. Um, so you get through the, the clock tower stage, you get into stage three. And for, for me, uh, like, again, I mentioned the music a lot, but from the first stage, like the songs have such great starts where you just kind of feel like, yeah, let's go. Like the, the, the soundtrack is basically just getting behind you and it's helping you out, letting you know that just incredible stuff is about to go down. But the music is almost cheering you on. It feels like where it's just makes you have this incredible badass soundtrack behind you as you're starting to tear your way through this level. And like once you get into level three, that's when you start getting introduced to the the flying enemies with change of direction, like your your owls, your your hawks, your birds, that type of stuff. That you need to, as I mentioned before, you got to start really mastering the the movements and the mechanics of these enemies to be able to predict where they're going to be flying. Otherwise, you're just going to start getting juggled, especially if you try to go. And just like run past this, past them on the screen, then like three of them build up. They're just going to juggle you back and forth and and drain uh, all of your energy. Um, and I like I'm looking through, and I apologize because I'm looking through my notes like right now because I just finished it before we're recording. But um, I'm looking at a lot of these notes, and what I'm seeing is like a lot of the boss battles were really quite easy uh, for the Famicom version until you got to. Um, really, to, for me, it was until I got to the Grim Reaper. But it's a lot of times just trying to figure out what the patterns are, not freaking out. Be patient because if you freak out, you're just going to get hit a ton of times. Take your time. Be patient. you got plenty of time. And look around. Kind of see what's going on with their projectiles and kind of see what their mechanics are. Because a lot of these bosses, like the guy with the hammer, super easy to kill. The mummies, super easy to kill. But you just need to make sure that you're not running right at them. You're kind of just looking for how they're going to, to move around and then wait for the right time to strike. Well, it's one of the, the, the American version is definitely a lot harder, even with those, some of those more trivial, uh, trivial bosses. Mm-hmm. Like one of the main things is some of those levels, there's like a safe spot over on the right side of the screen. Mm-hmm. In the American version, that's not really a safe spot <laughs> because they um, – 
it's it's like a little pit that's on the bottom of the screen. So the enemies won't walk past that. Was this when you're fighting like that big red dude after you fight the mummy in the Grim Reaper? Yeah, uh, and that level. Oh, and in, yeah, that's so much easier. And and in the boss of the uh, the ghost ship. Yep. Well, that is an actual platform, which means the enemies will walk over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're not quite as safe. And the other thing is the uh, the pattern of the mummy bandages were also different because uh, like. And the Japanese one, they just fire up, down, up, down. It's not that difficult. Mm-hmm. Where I'm pretty sure in the American one, they fly up and down like they did in the original Castlevania. Yep. So yep. they're a lot uh, harder to dodge. And even like the, uh, I think it's, it's uh, the Leviathan or Pazuzu, as he's known in the Japanese version, that big demon mm-hmm. at the end of that outer wall level. Uh, he like fires these really, really tiny, weak fireballs. <laughs> yep. uh, but they made them a lot more harder to dodge in the American version. Yeah, they're very slow with the Famicom version. Easy, yeah. very easy to dodge. They're completely trivial. Yeah. Um, and in general, the main thing to, in Castlevania boss battles is uh, knowing where the sub-weapons to bring in, make sure they're powered up enough. And Because, yeah. uh, like, I got to the Pazuzu boss, and I was mostly playing as Grant, mm-hmm. and he's just too weak to beat that. But if you have uh, even just the regular Holy Water, he's not really that difficult. Yeah. Yep. Oh, well, I almost like feel bad for playing the Famicom version, but you know, not really because I just barely made it to the end. For 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 me, it's still like like the real challenge is like just to get to the end of the level. Like for for the most part, like I said, the bosses were not very difficult, or maybe you would have like one or two tough battles, but then you would get your continue. You'd go back to the boss, and then you would just kind of stop for a second and be like, alright, well, where are they jumping? Can I jump under them? Can I jump over them? Can I avoid the projectiles? Do I need to watch where they're going to you know, throw things? Do they have a second form? Um, so, like, you just got to kind of really take your time. And it, you, you mentioned like the, on the ghost ship, um, this is the only part of the game where there's a mini-boss. Like, Medusa shows up, just randomly. One mini boss in the whole game, like midway through the level, and that's it. Like it's not a theme. It's just there's one mini boss throughout the whole game. It's kind of weird. <laughs> it is. Um, so uh, as as I mentioned before, like I am getting to uh, the like stage six, and this is where you start having to deal with the platforming, and you have, you're starting to deal with. Uh, the flying enemies like the birds that are coming at you that are constantly because like you get hit, you got to keep in mind, this is Castlevania. So you're going to get hit. You're going to get knocked backwards. Okay. So depending on whichever way you're facing, you'll get knocked backwards. And a lot of times if you're jumping and you're fighting birds, that means you're going to get knocked backwards and into a pit and you're going to go from full health to completely dead, which is incredibly, incredibly infuriating. Uh, like just like I mentioned before, like that, that death sound, I heard over and over and over and over again. I think I continued, I probably continued like 50 times playing through this game. Like I did a lot of continues because I didn't have that, that 10 lives code um, at my, my disposal. Um, and I apologize real quick. You mentioned the, like the graphics of the water, like even in uh, stage six, when you're going in through the, the stream and stuff like that, you walk into the waterfall, the water will actually like splash on your head and like go around you, which is just again crazy to see on on that hardware. Um, so we we haven't talked about the auto scrolling stuff because there's a couple sections in the game where the game either auto scrolls up 
or down uh, or left to right. And it kind of forces you to do that by uh, dropping the platforms below you uh, one by one. And those, again, are all about really, Kurt, I believe they're all about being just patient and kind of taking a look at where you need to go and not thinking I need to go super fast because that's the, like, that is when you make mistakes. That is when you, like, do stuff on the final stage, when you start having to go down and, like, you're kind of, like, like the ceiling's falling down on you. But if you jump up into the ceiling, you die. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to kind of, like, you're constantly, like, watching out, making sure there's stuff above and below you that your head won't go above and your feet won't go below. Otherwise, it's automatic. It's automatic death city. The uh, that one part in the the red tower is is really strange because it it moves up like a couple tiles every couple yeah. seconds. Um, but uh, like the way I always beat it is to sort of like be ahead of where that is and just kind of like always at the edge. But, but and you just can't be too high, right? Because then the enemies will spawn. Like once it drops once more, like you could be on that platform, but the enemy will spawn like right into you. If you know where they are, you can <sighs> usually and uh, just like get the timing down right that you can attack them before they get you. Because it's uh, it's mostly just those what do you call it? The armor guys and yep. they're, they're pretty simple. So that's true. That's it's totally true. It's just like one of those things where oh man, like I'm working so hard and then I, I get to the top of the stairs. I'm waiting for the rest of the stairs to show up. Oh, enemies like right on top of the stairs and. It's, you know, immediately three points of health off. Um, and I think, I mean, this is kind of where I, where I stopped writing stuff down, but um, the, the, the game itself, um, I, I got all the way through it, uh, as I mentioned before, but uh, yesterday I was kind of messing around with some codes because you can enter, of course, passwords to jump around. And I realized, like, I totally missed stage nine or i guess there's two stage nines is that what it is or i just completely skipped over stage nine which one is that uh it's like a like a green background you get to the top and then it's like a red background it was it was really weird it's actually like labeled as stage nine one and i went from uh stage it looks like i went from stage one stage nine to a dash zero one which is the final stage where you fight Dracula and all that stuff. But then I typed in a password because usually I take a picture. Like I make sure I check my password before I shut off my system and make sure I have that password down. But I forgot to take the picture. So I went online and be like, all right, well, I got to restart at stage nine with this character. Like, all right, I go into it and actually it took me to a completely different stage that I had never played. Is that the one with uh, that starts with the, the little harpies that are dropping the flea men? Yes, there's tons of them. Okay. Yeah, I... I mean, when I played it through, I just got to the Grim Reaper. I was like, oh, I'm tired to go to bed. <laughs> but I thought that level came right afterwards. I don't know. I, I I don't know. Again, I think it might be just one of those weird, like, alternate paths where I went one way or there could have been a different option. I, I don't know. Because at one point, the paths converge. Like, the level that's based off of the Castlevania 1 stage, mm-hmm. uh, that's when the paths come together. Right. And then it's just a straight shot till the end. So yeah, how badass is that on like stage eight? It like takes you back to the first stage of Castlevania where you're fighting like the zombies and stuff like that. But it's just way hard. That was so cool when it like drops you back into that first stage of Castlevania, plays the music. And it was one of those 
one of those things where I, I don't remember seeing that so much in in video like retro games, like seeing a a callback to a previous game. But Castlevania kind of did it a lot. Like they did it in Bloodlines, or maybe it wasn't Bloodlines. Maybe it was Rondo of Blood, um, where you kind of ended up playing like these old stages, but kind of just redesigned, but with the original music. Oh yeah, both those games did that, of course. And awesome. yeah, yeah, that was the first time I remember seeing the callback. I'm like, right? I think like, I recognize this music. This all seems like, I mean, the level is completely different. It's much harder, but uh, yeah, it kind of that, that recurring theme became kind of like the big thing about the series. That's badass. Yeah, I, 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 I guess, like I said, I, I made it to the the end of, and you get to like that last stage where you're going to be. Uh, you have like three sections before you get to the final boss or the first of the three iterations of the final boss, and just found found it just impenetrable. And that's what this game is all about. Like you feel like you get to a part that is impossible and you just kind of, you die a bunch, you get a little bit further every single time, you learn the patterns a little bit more. And then you get to the point where like, yeah, the section's super easy. Like I can just run right through it. Like I know exactly where to go. I can run right through it and, you know, get to the boss. And like, I had so many of these continues for this final stage and to the point where I finally you know, beat the final boss, you know, check it out. I don't know how you find old videos on Periscope, but find periscope.com slash Kevin Larrabee or whatever. But, um, like being able to finally beat that boss after just kind of going through absolute hell to get to get to that boss and then lose a dozen different times at the boss feeling like I just couldn't figure out what was going on. You, you, you finally beat the boss. You're like, yeah, man, actually, you know, once you kind of figure out those patterns, really not that difficult. You just got to know where to stand. You got to understand the attacks that are going to be coming at you, how to dodge them and be patient. Don't feel like you need to attack every single time there's an opportunity. Maybe you need to wait until the next opportunity so you don't risk taking damage or for that final version of the boss falling into a pit when it has like three bars of health left. I, th- I think I'm not sure if I'm misremembering, but I think in the Japanese version, if you die, you start right at Dracula, right? Nope. No, no, you start all oh, the no, way back. You, you do as long as you don't continue. Because I think in the American version, you have to start the whole stage over. I think you're totally right. That's I remember that. Yep. <laughs> that gross. made it a lot more difficult. So I'm gonna. I don't know if you can hear this. I'm gonna just ejected my Famicom version. This is going to stay in my possession. It is not going anywhere. It is a nice copy. Still has the red sticker from friends on it and, uh, which I'm scratching off right now, but, uh, God, this is just the, I believe it is the, the best version I have. And I wish this is the type of stuff. Hey, Nintendo doesn't listen to this, but like, think about what, could be of something like as much as I don't like the virtual console because of the limitations that it has on on the games and the people that that use their games and the account system and all that stuff that I won't get into. This is a game that should be available on the uh, Nintendo Virtual Console in America. Games where there's differences, games where there are um, significant differences, not only in the music but like you said, the difficulty and how it plays. This is the type of stuff that you should be utilizing a a service like that for. You know how many people would want to buy the Japanese version of this game on the virtual console in the United States? Everyone would, right? Like every Castlevania fan, they they want they know about this music. They know about this VRC six six chip. I know this. All this stuff is. I mean, it seems like relatively trivial things that they should be able to get together. And they, I guess. 
for whatever reason, because the amount of money that they probably make on these sales is probably not very high. So exactly, they just yeah. they give it to some producer that just like hit the button to make sure that it goes online and that's it. Yeah. Where whereas you know. Sega, they would do all sorts of things with their own discs where they would have multiple versions, uh, multiple regional versions. They would have multiple ports of a game. Uh, they would have all sorts of supplementary stuff. They would make new games. It was just like a crazy amount of work that they put yeah, into it. Yeah. I, I, I think, and this is, this is what I hope to see. I hope to see like a trend like Mega Man Legacy Collection. Um, where you, you have companies like Capcom that aren't doing anything with an IP. And if you could get, you know, like those guys over like like Frank and Mike Micah uh, over at Digital Clips to say, hey, like just let us like look at how successful Mega Man Legacy Collection was. I had some bumps uh, at the start for sure, uh, but the 3DS release nailed it. Uh, I've been playing the crap out of that. It's really, really good. Um, and they did do an update. So if you do have the other versions, go download the update. But I, I really hope that we can get more collections like this. Like think about just getting like even if it was just like the three games and like the three Game Boy games on the 3DS, like getting those in a cartridge and being able to play that stuff and jump between the Famicom versions, the NES versions, and go through a bunch of different art of the games, just he- like learn about the history of the development and all that stuff, have the sound test available in a menu with nice clean sound instead of what's coming out of my Famicom's not known for their crisp, clean sound, even the AV modded ones, even when amazing people like Wes is, is doing the mod, like you can only do so much with it. But uh, that's what I want to see. That's what I want to see in terms of game preservation. And Frank did, um, Kurt, I don't know if you saw Frank's uh, talk on an emulation at GDC, but that's what he's talking about. Like that's that's what we should be doing to preserve this stuff. We need to make sure it's available for people and not make it a huge pain in the ass to play. Yeah, and it's it's one of these things that like everybody just kind of pirates it because piracy serves that section. It's it just is ignored well, so often to, by right? a lot of companies. Yeah, how else are you going to play this game unless you pirate it or you you know spend one hundred and fifty dollars because you need to buy a Famicom and you need to buy a copy of the game. Plus, you got to get that ship from Japan. I, I feel like there's all sorts of these other hurdles that they just don't bother going through. Yeah, no. Well, again, I think that's that's why. You know, I don't like. I don't remember. I think. Uh, I think he was talking about this in his talk. But you have like all these companies that have these IPs that they're doing nothing with. If they would just say, "Hey, can, let us have the keys to the car," trust us. Like we will take care of the car, and we'll make sure that not only are you know, am I going to drive it, but I'm going to let hundreds of thousands of other people drive it and they're all going to have a blast and it's going to be running better than ever. And it's not going to be in this garage that, you know, under the cover that you just leave it there and people just walk by wishing like that car would come out of the garage. That's a terrible analogy, but you you know what I mean? Like this is stuff that should be easily playable or easy to pick up. Otherwise, like there is no, you don't have an excuse to like yell about piracy because People should have the ability to play this stuff, and you're not giving them an ability to do it except on the virtual console, which is kind of runs like crap. <laughs> Managed by Nintendo. <laughs> Managed by Nintendo, which cares about as much of the, about the virtual console as you do about your IP that's in the garage. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So that's my – you guys, you know the show's back because I just ranted about virtual console for five minutes. So <laughs> – podcast is back um i'm not gonna lie i totally bought a japanese Wii just so i could get on the japanese virtual console right 
And uh, they have some great stuff on there. And plus, like, the quality of the emulators is really inconsistent, but some of them are really good. Well, like I the think, Neo, I think the, it was just the 3DS and the Wii U have really bad emulators. Like the the like the picture looks terrible on those compared to like the Wii that you know, as you were saying, like the Wii looks really good. Like the emulation was really good on it. The um, the, some of the emulators run in 240p, which means it's like almost beautiful. It's almost separable from playing on an actual system. Because yeah. uh, the Neo Geo stuff is the main reason I had bought it for, and just to get Blazing Star and Polestar, like yes. my my AES uh, broke a while ago, so I still have the MVR cards around them, but they're just collecting dust. But just to be able to play those games again without having to deal with MBS bullshit, just oh, wow. Yep. yep. Uh, this is. You know, again, we mentioned Jeremy Parrish, but I remember like back in the old one up show days, like there was a, or maybe it was a retro, not retro, not segment, but like it was so, it was such a huge disparity that he shot a video, um, on, on, on one up.com all about the, the incredible library that was available on the Japanese virtual console versus like us where we had Super Mario 64, The Legend of Zelda, like a bunch of bad, NES games, like barely any Super Nintendo, didn't have PC Engine or Turbo Graphics at the time. Like the Japanese Virtual Console was just the best, and I walked back, mul- walked past multiple Wii systems for like two thousand yen. Like they're just Wii systems are all over the place at used shops, and they're just trying to get rid of them. I maybe should have picked one up but i already have the console so it's not a big deal there they uh, it was pretty easy to get working on the japanese system like they accept american cards and everything oh, and uh, yeah. they had a bunch of namco ports which had never come out over here the problem is the emulator was pretty bad on them i was really disappointed mm. um but you know i could play rolling thunder too now i guess <laughs> not bad not yeah. bad that's uh god rolling thunder that was uh that was a game that i rented the crap out of it. it was one of those black um tengen carts i love the cover art to the american version yes. of that, <laughs> that and alien syndrome were like yep. two of my favorite nintendo covers oh man those those bootleg tengen games oh they're so good like actually best version of tetris bootleg cart it's great <laughs> Uh, but their, their their release pattern is so frustrating, especially with SNK stuff, because they would they always start with like the earlier games. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, Fatal Fury is sort of interesting from a historical standpoint, yeah. but nobody really wants to play Fatal Fury exactly. anymore. It like I didn't really start to think the Fatal Fury got good until like Real Bout Special. Yeah, and of course it takes them forever to do that. But like they started releasing again in the PS3, but of course they didn't get to that point, so they just started releasing you know like Magician Lord again. Magician Lord is okay, <laughs> it but it's totally okay. It's not what you know I want. It's like they never got to doing uh, Garo. I think they're finally doing Last Blade Two. Uh, I just think it's coming out next month. Yeah, Mark of the Wolves. Uh, damn, beautiful game. Worth the two hundred dollar MVS cart if you're in Japan. Pick it up. Um, actually, maybe – okay, we're going to do one more segment. So we're done talking about uh, Castlevania 3. Um, we're going to be talking about just some more retro game discussion, including the latest at HG101. So stick around. Uh, we'll be right back. We're even probably going to talk about some cool emulation stuff that's going on on the PlayStation 4 and some future releases. So stick around. We'll be right back.
Okay, so I, I wanted to talk to you uh, about this just because it's been it kind of came up in the last segment, but I was wondering, have you checked out any of the the uh, I guess the the ports or the the arcade classics that have been coming out on the the PlayStation Four? I know, uh, I believe it's Hamster that is bringing that stuff out on the console, and uh, of course, about every week I'm seeing Shane Bettenhausen post a new Fantastic Arcade Classic that is coming to the PlayStation Network on the PS4? Uh, I, I don't have a PlayStation 4, so I only hear about them. Um, Hamster was the same company that put out those Oritachi Geisen discs back in the PS2 era. Really? And uh, Yeah. Apparently, they've come a long way since then because those were, those were basically in uh, – they took MAME, ported it to the PS2 without yeah. any permission, stuck ROMs <laughs> on there, and put it on a disc, and that was it. And that's not like a Japanese company at all to just not ask for permission. And yeah, that happened a bunch with also, uh, I think them Kunio Game Boy Advance collections. Um, But yeah, and then they sold them for like 2,500 yen each. They gave you a a crappy, crappy music CD that had some music. Uh, Sometimes they had all of it, but it still wasn't very much. It's a crappy DVD that was just random footage of the game. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, like, I'm really happy now that I own a physical copy of Trio of the Punch. It's not a like it's not even a good emulation. Like it runs like half the frame rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, but apparently the arcade archives are pretty good. I mean, again, it is basically just like main ports to the PS4, but right. uh, it is available legally, and they've they've been getting a, a pretty large number of licenses and stuff. Um, the, the one of the reasons I found out that they were bringing them out in America was uh, I was talking to Ryuichi Nishizawa a little while ago, um, and one of his earlier games, uh, Ninja Kun, had come out. Yeah. And he was just like, this game is very popular in Japan, but the American sales are terrible because nobody knows what it was. Right. Uh, so that's why I did a little interview about, you know, it was Days of UPL and some of those earlier games. Because UPL is not like a well-known company at all in America. I'm not even sure if their games were you know, ever really came out here. Although they did make some sort of interesting games for that. Um, but they've gotten to the Konami stuff now. So Gradius came out a while ago. Uh, yep. Life Force and Salamander came out a couple weeks ago. Uh, I think Double Dragons. Yep. Double Dragon 1 and 2. Uh, I believe – I know 2 came out. I'm yeah. positive 2 came out. Um, and so, I mean, I don't, I don't know. How much do they cost? I believe they were like $6. Yeah, that's, that's too bad for an arcade game of that, yeah. like, that quality. No, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just – I'm really happy to see stuff like that because that is – like if I had a PlayStation 4, like I would be all over that stuff. I really wish uh, it was also coming out uh, – I mean, they can't be too intensive. It would be nice to see that stuff on the Vita just because I've kind of – for the most part – I mean, we'll see when the PlayStation like 4K comes out or whatever that that's going to be. But uh, for right now, I'm very much just like a portable and retro guy and – um, I would love to see that stuff come out on the, the PlayStation Vita, but then you know that would have to exist in Sony's Sony's eyes, which isn't really happening so much these days. I'm uh, sure porting. I mean, the Vita, I'm sure, is more than power enough to run these these right. old games. It's it's, it's got to be trivial, but I know those those SNK minis ran on them, but I think those are technically PSP games. Those, yep, those are PSP games, and they're part of the SNK collection, which you can actually get. There's a there's and it was weird. Like it only came out as volume one. Volume two never came out in the, in the states. They only brought volume one over. But you can actually get a really. I think it's like twenty um, Neo Geo games on it on that SNK collection with things like Neo Turf Masters. Unfortunately, it only goes up to I think it's King of Fighters ninety five or ninety six. 
are, are the versions that are on there. They don't have 98, which is kind of what you would want. Um, but oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I just looked up the price. They're $8 a piece. I do. I think I have shock shippers on the Vita, and I think that might yep. be a more more native port. Oh, okay. Like it's not a PSP version, but I, I can't remember. Yeah, Shock Troopers, badass game. Shock Troopers 2, weird-looking game, still kind of badass. Uh, like, polygonal, kind of, right? Yeah, like CG-rendered sort of yeah. stuff. It was at that, I mean, the first one is much better, but the second one's not too bad. Oh, man, Shock Troopers. Uh, Neo Geo, awesome system. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm always happy to talk about Neo Geo. I kind of miss not having my console as MVS anymore, but uh, like you said, there's a bunch of different ways to, to play that game, uh, game those games, uh, and... Hopefully they continue to 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 come out. Um, well, of course, like I, it's been a long time since we we had you on the show. So I get to ask you what what's going on over at Hardcore Gaming One Hundred and One, um, and I know because I'm looking over at my shelf that you guys recently had a had a new book come out. Uh, yeah, the most recent one we did was uh, a digest about 100 pages long that focused mostly on Taito. Mm-hmm. Um, the cover cover subjects that were Darius and Elevator Action Returns. Yeah, that's it. Dude, elevator action returns. What's up? Like yeah. Sega Saturn, go pick that up. That's another game that just exploded in price recently. It's like a hundred dollars. They, they, I bought it from a website in Japan a couple years ago for about three thousand yen, <laughs> and the last time I checked, it was thirty thousand yen. Yeah, I found it for like five thousand, uh, maybe two years ago. But by the time that I sold it, I sold it for a hundred dollars. Yeah, it's some something about the game just exploded in, in price, and that I wasn't originally going to feature that like elevator action, but uh, mm. Rusty Shackles, yep. the guy who does the covers, he was like, "I really love that elevator action returns. Please let me draw it." I'm like, "Okay, it's in." Dude, that's that's a really good reason, and if whatever reason you need to get that game in there, I am I am all for it. Um, and, and I want to mention, like, for people that haven't been checking out the the books at HardcoreGamingOneOneOne.net. You got to keep in mind, like, not only are the, the covers awesome, but you guys always just do an incredible job at, at putting the the books themselves together, where it's something that you really want to have uh, on the shelf. And like you said, um, you just did Digest Volume Two, which is uh, Taito Arcade Games, um, and also uh, before that, a uh, couple. Uh, just before that, I want to mention: check out the Strider and Bionic Commando One. Uh, again, the cover art's friend. Cover art is fantastic. Uh, Konami shooters, like this is all the castle. Obviously, if you're listening to this, the Castlevania book. And the best part about all this stuff is like these books, thanks to like the amazing world of printing, like you can get them for around $20, $20, $25, sometimes they're on sale. And you can also pick them up on the the Kindle as well. So if you have like a iPad Kindle, um, Kindle on the iPad, I should say, why am I talking so weird? I have a cold. I apologize. Um, they just look really, really beautiful, whether it's on an iPad or a Kindle. Or if you're like me, like, I'll be real, Kurt. Like, I got rid of a ton of my books. Like, I was all about minimalism, getting rid of so much stuff. In terms of video game books, I still have five of your books. Like, everything that I bought that was from Hardcore Gaming 101, still on my shelf, while others have kind of uh, gone to the the wayside. That's how <laughs> great these books are. So if you're listening to this, uh, whether you're going to hardcoregaming101.net or you go to Amazon.com and you want to go through that route, go and, and pick them up just because they, they're they like must-haves for people that really love this stuff. And you're also going to be supporting a website and someone that is always doing great research and making sure that these great stories get on earth and they are shared with the people that want to hear them. Oh, thank you. 
I was, that was my that's my sales pitch that I get zero cents for. Keep in mind, and it's just because like that's like stuff that I really love and I believe in. I I, I want to recommend, and it's always also super dangerous because then you go and look at like what the customers also bought with your books, and you're like, oh man, I got to pick up that book, I got to pick up that game. Oh crap! I gotta yeah, Amazon is the master of upselling like oh, that. They're so good. Um, and also, yeah, if you're there, pick up some of uh, like Jeremy Parrish's stuff uh, is on there as well, which are always uh, just. Uh, the Game Spite quarterly stuff, like all those books are, are also fantastic. Just we're so lucky. Like the untold history of Japanese game developers, like you were, we were talking about before, both those volumes are on Amazon. Great time to be into retro games because there's so much great content and great people producing it for us. We just got to make sure that we support them. Um, so uh, as I do mention that, I will make a quick plug. Um, if you do want to pick those up, and uh, as you probably heard in the last show, and if you didn't turn in the last show, you're hearing it right now, like I'm going all in with this podcasting thing. So I in more than ever need the, the support of the audience. So uh, if you do want to pick up these books, you can go to Amazon, excuse me, uh, fitcast.network or go to backinmyplay.com and click on the uh, Amazon tab at the top of the website. That's going to send you right back to amazon.com and it will just use my affiliate link. So at the end of the sale, they'll send me like, whatever it is, like 5% of the sale. So Kurt still gets his cut. Amazon just gets less less of a cut, and it comes to me as an advertising fee. So it helps support the production of this show and allows me to continue to do this show on a weekly basis. So sorry, Kurt, I had to get my own commercial in there too. (laughs) Of course. Um, But, uh, you know, what else is going on 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 the website? Obviously, people should be picking up the books. But um, since I'm a Patreon supporter of yours, like I'm always getting awesome updates, which is which is great to see. You guys are constantly putting new content up on on the website. So what should people be checking out? Uh, Let's see. Next month we have F-Zero is going up. A pretty big article. Last month we had a really big one for Double Dragon. Yep. That was awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, more longer in the future, there's uh, a Fallout article. That's probably going to be a little while. <laughs> um, uh, PC Fallout, Fallout One, all of them. Yeah, all the Fallout games. God, thank um, you for using that. That <laughs> that um, what would you call that? A featured image for Double Dragon with one of my favorite movies featuring <laughs> uh, characters from Party of Five. <laughs> uh, as far as I'm working on uh, a couple different books at the same time, like I have a. Like, I like working on stuff, but I don't always have the longest attention span. So I tend to work on like four or five different things at the same time. And then eventually like zone on one and be like, okay, I have to finish this particular project. Mm-hmm. So the two books that I'm working on, which I hope to get by the end of summer, is a book that focuses on Data East. Awesome. And uh going to start another series of focusing on shooters, shoot 'em ups. Uh, the Data East one started as a digest sort of thing that was going to be like 100 pages and have a bunch of different features. Uh, but I had trouble narrowing down about what to cut because I wasn't able to fit everything. Uh, so it just turned into um, – it's going to be a little bit shorter than like the Castlevania or the Sega books. But, you know, like around like 120 pages or so. Uh, that's going to feature like Bad Dudes, Karnov. Like Data East had a lot of yeah. – they were very interesting developer. Like some of their games were uh, – they typified the 80s, like Bad Dudes. Would you call, would like you call those like – I don't want to call them – b-tier games but like in terms of like their brawlers and stuff like that like it was kind of always a notch below of like like the konami games and stuff like that like they just kind of like play just a little bit different they looked a little bit different sound a little bit different that almost was like i i, I don't i feel bad for saying b-tier but you know what i mean 
No, they definitely were a B-team sort of thing. Um, the thing is, though, that they actually made some games that are like really, really, really good cult classics. Mm-hmm. And then really, really bad cult classics like Cheer the Punch. But uh, Bad Dudes is pretty good. Bad Dudes is okay. Night Slashers is a fantastic beat-em-up. Boogie Wings is a fantastic shoot-em-up. Um, are these well, available anywhere? Do you know in terms of like Virtual Console or anything like that? Um, let's see. What did I just say? Because I have not heard of either of those games. Night Slashers, no. Uh, yeah, I mean, they even bought out a Data East collection on the Wii a little while ago, and oh, it yeah. didn't. It didn't even have most of their really good games. Like, so, so who owns? Do you know who owns Data East right now? Uh, the properties went to a company called G Mode. Oh, uh, that's right. <laughs> in, the, in the like the early two thousands, um, apparently that one French indie developer Golgoth had gotten access to their properties. They made Metal uh, Magical Drop Five, which was kind of a technical disaster. Yeah. Uh, they were going to do a Joe and Mac reboot that uh, I don't think has really gone anywhere. So, I mean, maybe just the holding company has them now. Like, G-Mode was still around when, uh, you know, th- that's the company that they were able to get the licenses from back then. Mm-hmm. Um, that w- they they made it as Volume 1, but obviously it didn't do very well, so there was no Volume 2. But, yeah, it was missing Night Slashers, Boogie Wings. Um, Edward Randy is an incredible game. Uh, that was that was scheduled to be ported to the Saturn, mm-hmm. uh, but it got canceled. It's a very treasure esque sort of game. It's like you're wearing an Indiana Jones sort of character, and you're always like put to different action set pieces, and uses lots of scaling effects. It's just a really really cool game. Fascinating. Um, it and that, that reminds me. I picked up. I bought three games. Like if you've ever seen my like pictures on Twitter when I come back from Japan, it used to be like not kidding, like 80 games, 70 games, something like that. I came back with three games, one of them being uh, Darius Burst Chronicle Survivors on the PlayStation Vita. Have you checked Have you checked that Vita version out? Oh, yeah, that's the version I played the most. Oh, it's pretty good. I bought that one. It's, it's a really good portable game, especially for the, uh, the shooter missions. And it's so weird. Like, you can play it in the super widescreen arcade version on your PlayStation Vita. It looks ridiculous. I know it's so it's, tiny, it's but it works. Awesome. It totally works. Um, that's that's a cool game with a weird ass soundtrack, and um, you should go pick it up. It's kind of it's kind of pricey on PSN right now. It's like forty dollars for the digital version in the U.S., but I ended up finding it for like thirty five hundred yen used, which is like thirty bucks, um, which is the right price for me. Who wasn't sure if I was going to like it, but it's not super duper hard. It's totally playable as like a casual, you know, person like me. I can totally play through, uh, like you were saying, like those missions are blasted. Just kind of like spend five, ten minutes and go through a couple of missions. It's great. Uh, boss battles are also really, really epic. Um, okay. And then outside of the Data East one, which yeah. we're still kind of finishing up, they also did license stuff like they did Robocop. They did a Ghostbusters yep. arcade game. Um, Ghostbusters arcade game. Was it like three player? Yeah. It was, it's really? actually. It's meant to be based on the cartoon, uh, even though the cartoon characters don't really appear in the game. Yeah, they appear uh, like on the cabinet art and in the. It was ported only to the computers, so they're on the cover, and that's even weirder because that was yeah. a total, totally different game in Japan called uh, Make You Hundred G. Wait, so which came first? I think Make You Hundred G came first, and then they port, brought it to the U.S. as a ghost as both game. Yeah, what? and it's uh. It's they changed a lot of stuff for the the American version. They made it marginally better. It's still not a great game. Um, still but yeah, weird. still weird. That's I, 
Ghostbusters series of Ghostbusters games like that 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 would be a cool series in itself with all the crazy ports of like the any the NES version that came on like Commodore 64 and kind of sort of Atari kind of sort of like everything it's on the master system and stuff too yeah um and uh the other book i'm mostly doing right now is uh more on you know, non-konami shoot 'em ups and i've sort of broken it down to I me mean, like if we want to do like everything of the 8 and 16 and 32-bit era and even up to the more recent cave and sikyo stuff mm-hmm. it take it like at least three or four books jeez that's so, awesome <laughs> so i'm starting on the first one now which is the cover stuff is going to be on compile shooters Okay. Um, what they made, um, they're actually relatively well known in America because most of their games did come out, even yeah. though they came out under different names. So there was a uh, Zanuck, Power Strike, Musha, Guardian Legend, Blazing Lasers, um, Robo Elise. They made all those games. Well, and Blazing Lasers is probably my favorite shooter of all time. And um, like the first article I did for the site back in like 2003 was on compile shooters, but it was also like really really short like i covered like half the games because a lot of their games are so obscure that at the time in like 2003 mm-hmm. like they, nobody had really dug up any information about them um but i've been revisiting all that and completely redoing that one from scratch uh it also ties in with the star soldier series uh because like uh hudson ran a shoot 'em up competition uh based on star soldier and star force mm-hmm. and a couple of the other games uh and then their first PC Engine shooter was Blazing Lasers, which was made by Compile. Yep. All of the subsequent Star Soldier games were they're, they're more sequel to Blazing Lasers, more or less. Yeah. So it's like that style of shooter was like set down by that game for like a, almost a whole generation. Yeah, they they definitely sound and play very very similar, um, and they're also fantastic. And they're not really expensive if you have a PC Engine. Go pick. Yeah, up. they're great. They're they're mostly they're chip games except for the per parody game Star Partier. And even then that's not that game's not that expensive. Uh that, that was the other thing that I saw in when I was out in Japan as I saw those retro freak consoles or basically like like Retrons but in Japan and they also play PC Engine games uh all over the place. Like at every electronic store, every used shop or every like used bookstore, they they had them. Um it is crazy how much they're pushing that or i guess how popular it's getting out there but retro gaming is continuing to increase in popularity so i guess that makes sense yeah um the other games that we're featuring and i also have to go back and redo a lot of them because they were old articles mm-hmm. um it's our type and thunder force thunder force so good oh man yeah those are the shooters that i love um so i'm i'm pumped i'm really looking forward uh, to that, and on like a like a side note, we were kind of chatting through uh, Twitter a little bit. But one of the shows I don't want to do in the in the near future is is talking about um, PlayStation One Japanese RPGs, um, specifically. Like if you listen to the A Four Play Show that that I did a uh, by the time that you hear this a couple weeks ago, but the uh, the idea is like, all right, well, there's this incredible lineup, like. Sony does an incredible job of getting these games on the the PlayStation 3, PlayStation Vita, uh, and uh, PSP. But there's an incredible lineup of JRPGs available for like $6 a piece, or some some of them are 10 like um, uh, Suikoden and stuff like that. But 
these games are available for like $10 and they're known as classics, but it's been 20 years roughly. So uh, what should people know going into them? And, and what are the games that are really worth playing? Because I can't believe how polarizing it is when I hear people talk about these games or when I ask about a game, like you'll talk about um, Xeno Gears or something like that. And people will say, oh my God, Xeno Gears is the best PlayStation 1 JRPG. And some people will say like, oh, it's absolutely terrible. Like it drags forever. And same thing. When it comes to uh, games like Chrono Cross, like people say, oh, Chrono Cross is just absolutely incredible, pinnacle of PlayStation 1 JRPGs, or some other people would be like, it's absolutely terrible, do not play it. I'm like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> let's figure this out. And like, maybe there is some understanding. Like, we can agree that, all right, well, in this game, once you get to this town, know that it's going to get really hard. So just spend like an hour grinding and you're going to be good to go. Otherwise, you're going to smash your head up against the wall. Like, I just want to know what are the games that we should, as people that maybe have not checked this stuff out, what are the games that we should be going back to that are available on the PlayStation Network and drop $6, but even more so, drop 40 to 60 hours on um, and make sure that we don't get 20 hours in or 15 hours in and then feel like we just don't want to go any further. We just wasted all that time. The thing about PS1 RPGs is that, or just RPGs in general, is that there's a lot of different aspects to it. Exactly. So you have, you know, storyline, writing, uh, the battle system, the customization system, and just overall pacing. Load times in and out of battles. So, you know, everybody sort of prioritizes, you know, what they like, you know, more so or than others, especially because, um, like, the PS1 area is where JRPGs got you know, quote unquote epic where they have these, these really long, sometimes kind of confusing and weirdly told, but you know, very, very ambitious stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and those could be kind of hit or miss. Cause I know Xenogears was amazing when I played it, when I was 17 years old, <laughs> is it still amazing now? I mean, uh, it really is just like a mishmash of like Evangelion and some, somebody's like vague reading of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh see, this is what I'm talking about. Like this is like maybe that sounds awesome, but maybe it sounds absolutely terrible. I don't know. Um, but I know I have two folders full of JRPGs that I got like on sales for like three dollars or four dollars, and I just want to know which ones I I should really play because this is all coming from playing uh, through over the last like two and a half years playing through Persona Four, which is after beating it and putting eighty hours into that game. No doubt is it a top five game in my my all-time list. So I want to experience some more JRPG goodness, like along the lines of Final Fantasy IV. Again, a game that I hold incredibly high. I just had a blast playing through that uh, PSP version. Um, So I want to try to find some fantastic RPGs that hold up today and that are are still um, a blast. A lot of people have pointed me towards things like Grandia, uh, Grandia is good. Grandia, yeah, Grandia one, and, and then of course you know the you know sequel came out in the Dreamcast, which is maybe a little bit harder to pick up, but um, I it's what, on um, it's on Steam now. Oh, it is. Um, yeah. But, well, my problem is I can't play eighty hour games on a couch. I have to do it. Though I can, but I have to be it on a portable where I can shut it off really quickly, and I like to play them while like listening to podcasts and stuff, which I know is terrible. You shouldn't do it, but <laughs> multitasking like it's hard to do not do that these days. But yeah, anyways, that's for a future episode. Um, I'm going to be grabbing Kurt, and I think um, I'm also going to be snagging uh, Peter Brown, who also has over at GameSpot, who has a brand new podcast all about Japanese games and Japanese RPGs 
over at um, as I dropped my phone because I tried to smoothly open up my podcasting app and and take a look at the title, but um, it is. And uh, of course, I, I can't find it. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'll make sure we we bring that up on a, on a future date, unless I can airship is what it's called, um, which is weird. Like the, it's airship game spots, Final Fantasy podcast, which is supposed to mostly be about Final Fantasy. But they do talk about other JRPGs. I guess they're getting ready for Final Fantasy 15 and all that stuff coming up. But um, yeah, we will we'll, we will talk down the road about all that stuff but until then uh, as i mentioned before this show is now part of a huge podcast network at fitcast.network where it, like all the the podcasts that i run are now housed and now it is a business it is a llc this is a real job now so um it means so much if, if you guys jump on that website give me your support whether it be buying something through that amazon link where it doesn't cost you a penny more all it does is take some money out of amazon's pockets and jeff bezos that dude's like building spaceships he has so much money he's just throwing it at everything and all masses that maybe when you buy that electric toothbrush maybe you have a two dollars of that hundred dollar uh, price goes towards the Fitcast Network, and that's going to allow me to continue to produce podcasts like this and all the other shows on the network. And of course, at patreon.com slash back in my play, you can support this show directly by donating on a per episode basis. And while you're doing that, I would absolutely um, hope that you would also jump over to the Hardcore Gaming 101 Patreon, which I am a supporter of. I believe. If you are really passionate about this stuff, you should be a, a supportive a supporter of, and that's at patreon.com slash HG 101, and you can donate on a monthly basis. So if you want to kick, you know, $5, $10, $25 a month, you're going to get uh, a ton of great content produced and uh, Kurt delivers. Like there's constant updates through, through emails, not constant where, you know, there's a ton, but you know, like once a week, you're going to update like here, just make sure. Don't miss out on this stuff. Like I produce all this content for you, the Patreon supporter that believes in this stuff. Go uh, go check it out. So please uh, check out all that stuff. And you can follow Kurt on Twitter, uh, at HG underscore 101. The website is hardcoregaming101.net. And uh, you can follow Back in My Play at, at Back in My Play on Twitter to be updated about new episodes and things like that. And I am... Uh, at Kevin Larrabee, L-A-R-R-A-B-E-E on Twitter as well, where you can stay up to date on everything that is going on. So it's a very exciting time. I'm very nervous and worried and freaking out because I have started a business and a bank account that is involved with that business and invested money and time and effort into it. So I hope if you enjoyed this show and everything that that I produce, that you uh, help me out and uh, allow me to continue to do something that that I love doing. So uh, sorry for, for rambling, Kurt, but um, anything else that, that people should keep an eye out for or anything else before we wrap up? Uh, I think that should do it. I, I try to cover my bases this time. I'm trying to be <laughs> a little bit more organized, a little bit more professional now that this is a business and, and not a hobby. But like I said, lots of great things to check out. Please you know, do your best as someone, if you're in the position to do so, support the people that you know whose content that you enjoy and that you want to see continue to be produced. This is how we're able to do this because you know, we don't have advertising. So this is where we're supported by people like you that that really enjoy this stuff and that um, think it's it's worth producing. So thank you everyone out there that is supporting either myself or, or Kurt at hardcoregaming101.net. 
Thank you so much for, for listening to this episode. Some great stuff coming up down the line. Not just that great JRPG like audio guide, but also Mike Mike is coming back on the show. The uh, limited run games guys are coming on the show to talk about what they're doing. I have a ton of stuff lined up. I'm going to be making this the best retro game show I can possibly make it. So I hope you tune in every single week to check it out. Uh, again, Kurt, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and talking and, and doing it on such short notice and talking about this, this fantastic game. I know we are going to continue to be in touch because we, there's a lot of games left. There's plenty <laughs> of games left to cover. Oh, thank you again. All right, guys, that's going to do it for this episode of Back in My Play. We'll see you next time. Here's some more music from Castlevania 3. It's just so good. Just continue to listen to it forever. <laughs>